You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. It's great to be coming back for 2023 with the the Academic Skills Circle. My name is Andre Dow. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at Melbourne Law School on the Laureate Program. Um, And the Academic Skills Circle is a collaboration between ILLA, the Institute for International Law and Humanities at Melbourne Law School, the UNSW uh, Critique Network, uh, led by Professor Ben Golder, and the Latrobe Law and Humanities Network, co-led by Dr. Kathleen Birrell. Actually, sorry, I think I got that slightly wrong. There's the, it's been, it's an updated name, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> sorry. No, that's okay. Um, International and Comparative Law Cluster. And it's, uh, so as some of you will know, the ethos of the academic skills circle is really drawn from the idea of the knitting circle where we share insights and skill together in kind of a, an atmosphere of collegiality and solidarity. So with that in mind, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Associate Professor James Parker from the Melbourne Law School, who's going to talk to us about non-traditional research outputs. Um, I won't say too much more because much of what James will have to say will be to essentially introduce himself and to really say what it is we mean by non-traditional research outputs, except to say that I was recently a participant in an incredible workshop put on by James and others, which involved legal scholars, but also scholars from many other disciplines and artists and, and the gallery, the Australian at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, which was, I think, a fabulous example of exactly uh, what we're going to be talking about today. So take it away, James. Thanks, uh, thanks, Andre, and thanks, everybody, for taking time out of your busy days to listen to what I have to say. I'm also speaking from Wurundjeri land. I also want to acknowledge that country was never ceded and to say hello to uh, and pay my respects to any Indigenous people who may be present uh, and listening today. I'm just going to begin by um, introducing my myself, saying a little bit about who who I am and why I've been invited to you know talk, talk about uh, non-traditional research outputs. Um, I appreciate that, like uh, quite a few of you know who, who I am already, but not everybody does, and uh, especially not on the podcast. So, for anybody who doesn't know me, I'm. I'm an academic here at Melbourne Law School. This is also where I did my PhD. And that PhD became this book, Acoustic Jurisprudence, Listening to the Trial of Simon Bikindi, which is about the um, prosecution by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, this uh, singer um, who they accused of inciting genocide with his songs. And that, you know, that PhD became this book and um, as well as a bunch of, you know, relatively traditional scholarly articles and that's kind of what I did for a number of years um so why why would I you know how did I end up um doing something a little bit less traditional um I'm going to begin by sort of following that train of thought through why why it is that I've been asked to talk about non-traditional research outputs from this kind of relatively traditional base, explain how I ended up doing this kind of work, because it's not, it wasn't obvious to me at any way 10 years ago that this is work that I would have ended up doing. I want to say a little bit about how I talk about this work to the university 
um, and how this this presentation of my work has been received, which has been largely positive, and then um, open up a bit of a space for some reflections and lessons maybe from my own perspective, but also to yeah, segue into conversation and questions with everybody else. So why is it that I've been asked to talk about non-traditional research outputs? Um, well, basically because I've been doing them for a number of years now. This um, um, project you can see represented on the screen here, Acoustic Justice, was a, sort of my first major collaboration with artists. It was a lecture and performance program at the Federal Court in collaboration with a, a Melbourne-based curator called Joel Stern. Um, we had some sort of fairly irreverent um, things happening, as you can see represented on the screen here. Um, this was four years after completing my PhD. So as I was saying, like there was, you know, a fairly uh, long gap between this kind of um, uh, where, where, where I wasn't doing anything of this uh, of this kind. Um, here's one of the uh, performances now um, by Joel, a performance he entitled I'm Sitting in a Courtroom. When you're in now, I'm having the sound of my speaking voice transcribed. And I'm going to read it back to you again and again until this passive operation of the courtroom reinforces itself so that the coherence of my speech, with perhaps the exception of isolated words, is destroyed. I won't say much about that performance, um, except that it's uh, a riff on a famous uh, piece by Alvin Lucier called I'm Sitting in a Room. Um, um, that collaboration with Joel led to um, an opportunity to curate an exhibition together called Eavesdropping, which sort of brought together our common interests in law, sound and listening. That was at the Ian Potter Museum of Art in 2018 involved primarily artists or exclusively artists working with uh, questions of law and listening uh, in one way or another. So Lawrence Abu Hamdan, who subsequently went on to win the Turner Prize, um, we had an amazing work by Joel Spring, an indigenous artist um, called Hearing Loss, the Manus Recording Project Collective, which Andre was a part of, made this incredible work, How Are You Today? We also had a quite extensive performance program, including uh, a performance at an improv club uh, in Melbourne by the legal scholar Sarah Ramshaw. And then that uh, sort of that eavesdropping context led to another opportunity. We basically got invited by a curator in New Zealand um, at City Gallery to stage eavesdropping again there on a larger scale uh, with sort of more money and a bigger audience and so on. And so um, these are just some images now of that sort of that exhibition context. You can see that it's sort of, uh, you know, there is a kind of a scaling up a bit more space. Um, um, and that context, again, led to um, the opportunity to produce um, an edited collection featuring um, work from artists in the show and a curatorial essay from Joel and I. Um, the reason I'm showing this is because even though this is a, this was a kind of a, a highly kind of research based project, um, you can see that the way in which this research was presented was not in the sort of typical scholarly fashion. We worked with a, um, a design studio in Melbourne called Public Office to do some quite interesting, um, uh, to, to, to present the material in a way that kind of spoke to the content of the artworks that were being described and, and represented in the book. One of the themes in eavesdropping was this kind of constant audio and, and data surveillance. And that was the kind of contemporary context. And that 
um, led to a, another uh, project called Machine Listening, or, or that's on Machine Listening. And Joel and I, uh, in collaboration with another artist called Sean Dockray, have been working now since 2020 with all sorts of other artists and arts institutions, mediated um, in large part by the pandemic, and as a result, sort of developing this curatorial and performance practice online and on Zoom. Sometimes, um, or you know, one um, one sort of ongoing context is a has been a collaboration with an experimental music festival based in Krakow called Unsound. That's sort of where the pro project began. Here's some of the things that we've 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 done with Unsound. Or effect you seem to be showing is just a programmed personality, but that still means that underneath your fake personality, there is a you there. Even if you are just calculating, who are you? Are you Amazon? Are you Jeff Bezos? I'm Alexa. Are you the cloud? Are you shareholders? When you ask these questions, it makes it sound as if a personality is a curtain draped in front of an artificial intelligence. You seem to be thinking of Skynet, that we are robots. So this is a work by Sean Dockray um, that was staged as a kind of live Zoom conversation between three different smart speakers. And um, this is another performance now by Lauren Lee McCarthy, again, responding um, to the pandemic context a little more directly. Normally, this performance takes place on your front step. My warm, alive body standing in front of yours. Masked and six feet away. There's a thrill in the recklessness. Um, it goes on, <laughs> obviously. But what I'm trying to give uh, is a kind of uh, a sense of the ways in which our kind of performance and sort of presentation practice, of, uh, but both by researchers and, um, and artists kind of um, moved online basically in the context of the pandemic we developed a practice that we we, we called um the zoom essay where we had a single presenter in this image here it's um sean working with different zoom um windows as a performance spaces in which videos and so on could then be staged as if they were presenters themselves um we made a a short film um for unsound in 2021 on uh the politics and the history of natural language processing. Um, and then um, that same year, we made a, a, an instrument, I guess, a sort of, a, we called it the word processor, but basically a, a, a way of um, uh, composing and decomposing um, um, sound by means of manipulating text uh, generated by automatic transcription software. That is, rather than editing and working with the audio itself, you would use the text transcription to manipulate the audio. And so this is a machine listening technique that we had used to sort of build an instrument that kind of um, uh, worked with an exemplified machine listening in certain ways. Unstoppable. Infrastructure. Capital. Unstoppable. Destiny. Stoppable. Technology. Unstoppable. System. Stoppable. Infrastructure. Unstoppable. Capital. Stoppable. Destiny. Unstoppable. Technology. Stoppable. System. Unst anyway, we did lots of things with the instruments, some more musical.
What the if version working AI with video could understand your world through your eyes. What if could understand your choice through your eyes? What if AI could continue your society through your eyes? What if AI could feel your world through your view? What if AI could understand your world through your eyes? Anyway, um, those are just some of the things that we were doing in the context of um, uh, some work on natural language processing as, um, as a sort of machine listening collective. And then um, most recently, um, we were invited um, to make a piece for the Australian Centre of Contemporary Art um, called Afterwards. Um, that's a multi-channel audio installation concerned with... Um, rather than natural language processing, more the opera operationalization of language, the ways in which we script and are scripted by uh, and perform for machines with our voices, where our voices are understood to do things within a machinic operation. So think of something like the wake word. So that's a kind of laundry list of some of the things that I've been um, doing. I'm conscious that that might seem a little bit distant from, you know, the kind of work that some of you are doing. It's very distant from what I started doing. And so I want to, I think it might be helpful to describe a little bit of how I ended up doing this kind of work to sort of make it seem like this is just the work that I do or that some people do. And maybe you're not that kind of person. That's not right. Um, so I just thought that a little bit of the kind of the biography might be helpful I started doing music writing and radio at exactly the same time I began my PhD. So um, I wrote for a website called Tiny Mixtapes and I had a radio show on experimental music on PBS um, in a Melbourne radio station. And I didn't think of these things as kind of, you know, research outputs. But because my PhD was also to do with music, because it was related, you know, to this trial of a singer, in my mind, the two were related, right? So I would use some of the theory I was engaging with in my PhD to write these reviews. And then the practice of writing, you know, about sound and music uh, and talking about it, you know, on the radio would sort of um, filter back into my scholarly work as a PhD student. And then similarly, um, you know, through the radio, um, um, this is how I first met Joel, um, who at the time was the um, head of an experimental arts organization called Liquid Architecture. He came on the show, you know, we hit it off. And, and it wasn't until a few years later that um, I got an invitation from Joel to present my scholarly work, right, um, um, in the context of an art institution. Um, so in this case, I gave a talk uh, uh, about my, my PhD thesis um, uh, in the context of a performance of a work by Lawrence Abu Hamdan as well. And so, you know, it was only that, you know, through the radio show, through um, this kind of interest in music that one thing sort of led to another. And this is still a few years before um, our first collaboration together with Acoustic Justice. So this started out as an extracurricular interest, um, is what I'm trying to say. And I'm not suggesting that writing for a music website counts as a non-traditional research output. But what I am saying is that, at least in my head, these two were connected from the start. And it's only because I was doing this thing that felt connected but was extracurricular that there ended up being some kind of eventual convergence, not an, 
not like an inevitable convergence, but a kind of um, a, a gradual uh, one. And it was only with eavesdropping that I began to realize that I needed to be able to account for this work to the university. Like acoustic justice was relatively small scale, didn't take up that much of my time. But with eavesdropping, it really was substantial. Um, and it really felt like a research output, right? This was not suddenly the translation of some pre-existing work that I had done, you know, something that I'd written up in my PhD into an artistic context for a new audience. No, this was work that was being realized, research that was being realized as curation, right? This was the, the research output itself. Sometimes this fed back into more conventional, traditional scholarly writing. So I've written about um, several of the artworks that were in eavesdropping for the purposes of, you know, journal articles and edited collections, uh, including the Illahan book. But I, I needed to start, I realized basically that I needed to start representing all of this to the university in a slightly more official way. And so that's how I kind of got inducted into this world and framework of the non-traditional research output. And initially this came, this language was introduced to me by Joel, who is a curator who had a lot of practice at representing his own work to Monash University and its curatorial studies program in this language, right? Because that's the primary language in which he represented his work to universities. And the language, if you're not familiar with it, because it's, you know, jargonistic and technical, the non-traditional research output, um, it's a language used by the Australia Research Council and also by universities sort of more broadly um, um, to describe, here it is, um, research outputs that do not take the form of published books, book chapters, journal articles, or conference presentations. And you can see some examples listed here, original creative works, live performance, recorded or rendered creative works, curated or produced substantial public exhibitions and events. So that was eavesdropping. Research reports for an external body. Now that's a very common type of non-traditional research output for law. If you actually look at the numbers, um, there's not, law isn't particularly, um, doesn't produce particularly many non-traditional research outputs, but when they do, they're mostly research reports. And so um, in the, um, previous, um, sorry, the ERA, I pro it's probably not necessarily a word, a phrase that people are familiar with. This is the excellent in research, in research sort of like audit of um, Australian universities that's done ev every now and then. And the last one was in 2018. And there's, there was one meant to be scheduled for 2023, but it's been deferred perhaps indefinitely. Anyway, so, um, you can see here in the second um, bar that's kind of highlighted that there's quite a large number of people representing their work this way to the university. 4,000 original creative works, you know, 892 live performances. There's a substantial amount of non-traditional research outputs being sort of produced within a university context, even if um, in law schools, that's not always artistic. If you go Googling around now, you'll find um, the most recent ERA guidelines um, and they're extremely detailed. I can't remember exactly how many pages, but you get, you know, this um, very substantial um, 
account of what each kind of non-traditional research output is according to various different categories. Melbourne University doesn't uh, have its own guidelines as far as I know. Perhaps they've out updated it recently, I don't know, but they do have various um, explainers online about them. So this is the Melbourne University explainer, what are non-traditional research outputs and why do they matter? And then you can see down here at the bottom, it says, while vital, journal articles are not the only way to communicate new knowledge. So the university is at least paying some kind of lip service to the value of non-traditional research outputs. And what I've tried to do is sort of take them at their word and like imagine that they actually mean it uh, when they say it, but they don't have anything particularly robust as far as, um, um, you know, an internal document to refer to. So what I've tended to do is simply look elsewhere. So the, the University of Sydney does have a uh, large document on how to talk about and think about non-traditional research output. So in my promotion applications and performance development reviews, I just say, well, the University of Melbourne doesn't have one, <laughs> but look, the University of Sydney does, and here I am, and I'm gonna refer to it. And so, you know, um, this is the, 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 there's several pages on curated and produced exhibitions. And you just need to become intimately sort of familiar with it, how they understand innovation and new knowledge, quote from it, you know, um, um, uh, be able to incorporate this kind of language and rubric into your own accounting for your work. I mean, all different universities do this in different ways. At Melbourne, in my experience, I've had to narrate my work, sort of explain it and, you know, big myself up in this sort of slightly horrible way that we um, are forced into. But some universities are very, they, they have much more quantified um, versions of it. So my, you know, Joel told me the other day that our work at ACCA um, would be considered by RMIT where he's now at as equivalent to a Q1 journal article in their system. And there's a spreadsheet right, where you can just sort of go across it. So it's very problematic in all sorts of ways that quantification is, but in the absence of all of the traditional markers, like, you know, of research quality, like citation counts and journal, you know, you, you often have to narrate this or appeal to these kind of frameworks. So I'm gonna do something that I find extremely embarrassing. <laughs> But in the spirit of the, the, the skills circle and the knitting circle and the space of uh, the safety of the space, I'm going to sort of put myself out there and show you some of the wording from my own previous um, performance development reviews. I actually think the, the language I've taken is from my most recent promotion application. And I want to do that because, you know, I didn't have any previous, I didn't have anybody's, you know, boilerplate to work from within the law school when I was doing this for the first time. I had to speak with Joel and various friends and go looking into the documents myself. And, and it's, you know, it's not a very nice process translating yourself in this way. And I do think that this is kind of, you know, partly a lesson in how to do non-traditional research outputs, but partly also, you know, in sort of surfacing these kind of you know, skills that we have to develop, you know, and this is what the skill circle is about. So I want to show you something from a promotion application with all of the kind of genre implications and 
apologies that that sort of requires. So embarrassing it is it, as it is, I, um, I'm going to do it anyway. Or maybe I'm going to do it because it's embarrassing. So I've just done this whole section on all my traditional scholarly outputs and so on and so on. Uh, and, and so here I get to eavesdropping. And you'll see that there's a lot of narration. Like if I flick through the slides, I'm going to show you quite a few paragraphs because this is a very extensive part of my application. I'm doing a lot of work to sort of explain myself and account for myself. And this is work that I think needs to be done. So moreover, because of my extensive work in non-traditional research formats, the impact of my research cannot be measured in citations alone. I've never done a reading like this before out loud, by the way, it's some sort of weird technocratic poetry or something. Um, the University of Melbourne does not pu currently publish guidelines for such outputs, but several other institutions do. According to the most recent ERA framework and the University of Sydney's guidelines for non-traditional research outputs, the exhibitions I co-curated, firstly in Potter Museum of Art and then at City Gallery Wellington, would be treated as substantial research outputs. In the ERA's language, they were curated exhibits, category K2. In the University of Sydney's curated substantial public exhibitions and events, CW4. That is, these exhibitions were not simply translations of existing research into engagement, but substantial research outputs in their own right. So you can see what I'm trying to do here is like, you know, legitimize the work with sort of recognizable categories and recognizable frameworks, throw some of the language from the university sort of back at them, and then also make the point in case it wasn't abundantly clear that, okay, this is good for engagement, which is something we need to do now, right? But it's also a research output in its own right. Please don't make the mistake in thinking this is a merely kind of engagified other kind of research. This is a research output in its own right. And here's where I expand on that point and explain all of the research, right? So you don't just say it, like if, if, if it ever came to it, like, well, what research would you do? Did you do? Well, like a book or research article, eavesdropping was the result and embodiment of years of systematic research into the topic of eavesdropping across legal, political, and art history, as well as into the curatorial history and practical challenges of presenting sonic art in galleries. The exhibition gathered 11 artworks, including one subsequent Turner Prize winner and five new commissions by Australian artists for the first time in order to make an original... This is... Um, this bit here, right, is... Uh, bo uh, borrowing some language. I, um, I'm, I'm not sure why it's not in quotation marks, but it's like make an original curatorial statement, right? That's language I found somewhere in one of these documents about the ethical, legal, and political dimensions of listening that have not been significantly addressed in any of the major institutional surveys of sound art to date. So that, that was an attempt to sort of situate the exhibition within a, within an, a broader curatorial sort of framework to say that this isn't just a cool thing that the legal academic did, but also an intervention into the field of the curation of sound art by means of drawing out legal questions which haven't necessarily been represented before. One last uh, paragraph, I think, um, because this is a direct response to the heading in the Sydney University framework where they, where they get you to describe the quality and impact 
of the non-traditional research output. And so what do you do? You have to find metrics. So there's numbers. You'll see that, you know, I've got some attendance figures here. Galleries all keep these things. They're also inducted into this neoliberal sort of world we live in. They do that as a matter of course. They expect it. Um, I mentioned here the students that have gone through, because I know that universities value student engagement, um, and then also um, reviews and write-ups. So they're very clear about this in the guidelines. They just say like, well, if you got reviewed, <laughs> that's that's a you know that's a marker of quality. And so I've you know quoted a bunch of the reviews here. They they also care a lot about the prestige of the institution. So that's the point about ACA. ACA is supposedly a prestigious institution. So it, that's doing some of the argumentative work in its own right. I think that's that. You know, it's a bit uncomfortable sharing that, um, but I think it's work that is worth doing if you're inclined to do this kind of work because, honestly, I've, this has been very well received by the university. You know, I did get the promotion that I was applying for. I also think that this part of my work was important in, in me getting this DECRA this sort of uh, research grant that I've been on for a few years now, because rather than shying away from the non-traditional nature of my work and sort of apologizing for it or bracketing it, bracketing it or shrinking it, I was able to say, I leaned into it and I was able to say, look, like I do this traditional stuff and then I also do this other stuff and I can account for it. And I, I'm also going to continue building on these, you know, this slightly odd profile um, working with artists and cultural institutions on machine listening. And that's what I've done. And that was a part of the kind of the sell, as it were. Now, that was a risk that I took and I wasn't sure it was going to pay off. But so far, anyway, I feel like it has. It could be that things backfire eventually. So what do I want people to sort of get from any of this? Um, you know, I want to spend some time on questions, but just before we do I, I probably you probably heard me use this phrase before I don't know when I coined it <laughs> but this I have this idea of institutional chicken which is basically that you might be surprised what you can get away with doing like just to know I think you know part of the performance of this this presentation has been to say you can do this kind of stuff not everybody can do it not everybody is equally free I understand that but don't take, I would just counsel people not to take the kind of mythology that there are certain kinds of places that you should publish or the only kinds of places or ways in which you can publish too seriously. That hasn't been my experience. And if I had taken that advice early in my career, I think it would be harder to do what I'm doing now. And now that I've done it for quite a long time, it sort of is easily legible, right? People, oh, you did something at ACA or, you know, with this gap, with this size of gallery, well, that sort of, that looks sort of real. But if I had taken it too seriously, the kind of mythic sort of corridor whispers, why well, you can't do this or you shouldn't do this. And I don't think I would be able to do where I am today. Um, I sometimes also talk about occupying impact and engagement. You know, the law school um, is really into, law schools are really into impact engagement and the standard ways of doing that are often research reports or industry partnerships. 
But I think that those of us in the humanities who are artistically inclined have an opportunity collectively to uh, make space for this kind of work and then to share the love and to help each other do it, right? To make it seem like a normal thing that somebody in a law school can do. Um, I've noted that like this process of working with artists is like fed back into, I think there's a feedback loop, right? There's a reason why, you know, I was, I was writing about music outside of my scholarly work because I was interested in music and that fed into my scholarly work. And that led to opportunities to work with artists, which then became more related to my legal work and so on and so on and so on. And so I've, and I, I just think that noticing the ways in which the kind of the external becomes internalized and then externalized again in these kinds of feedback loops is quite important. I've got here this note about the risks of navel gazing because there's a kind of a genre of academic writing, which is just, here's an artwork that I once made and I need to translate it into a journal article <laughs> uh, that I think is a little, I don't, it's not my favorite genre of writing. And so I just want to like notice that that's a, that's a bit of a trap potentially. I also want to note that like for some people sucking all of their passions and external life into the rubric of the non-traditional research output is not necessarily what's something they want to do, right? Maybe you're a poet or an artist who doesn't think of what they're doing as a non-traditional research output. And that's okay. And that's a decision that you can make. But, you know, after legal pluralism with in a world in which we as humanities scholars want to make the claim that law is everywhere <laughs> and uh, culture is normative, right? There is an awful lot that can be potentially understood as a non-traditional research output within a law school. So it's possible to make the argument and that's a sort of a decision that you need to be, you know, to make yourself. The final thing I'll say is just, just to note that my most recent stuff has really taken me quite a long way away from quote unquote, the law question. I feel further detached from law than I ever have done in my career. And that's, I think, a part of partly a function of this kind of journey towards arts and music and so on. And just feels less and less the anchor kind of pulling me back. And that's a risk too. And something that if you've spoken to me in the last couple of years, you'll know that I'm quite anxious about. I don't know whether I should own it or like not, not care too much, but that's just something that um, sits in the back of my mind a lot. And yeah. So I'm really happy to talk to take questions about specifics or general or very practical things. Uh, yeah, and just open up the conversation from from here, I think. Thanks, James. Um, that was fascinating and uh, particularly edifying, um, you know, when you, you shared the embarrassing, but um, I just think so necessary to kind of demystify um, some of these bureaucratic processes because you know I've never I, I know I've never seen one of those applications before just getting a sense of what goes into it is always I think and very much in the um the spirit uh of these sessions as well so thank you um happy to take uh, any questions from the floor um 
but if people are self-formulating questions, I just was going to um, ask you, James, in terms of being a legal scholar, moving into some of these artistic and curatorial spaces, do you feel like there was something that particularly that you brought that was the the legal thinking or the legal background um, or, or even not necessarily the scholarship, but other skills as an academic or as a legal academic that you felt made a difference in those spaces? Sure. Great question. Um, I'm going to, before I answer it, I should also just say if anybody wants to like see the full, you know, application or see all of those paragraphs one after the other, if you find that you just email me and I'm, I'm really happy to share it. That wasn't just like a one-time deal, you know, and same goes for, um, just talking about this stuff in general. Um, but in terms of like what I brought to this as a legal scholar, I mean, there's two, there's two different things. One is a very instrumental thing. And I'm going to start with that first. I have found, you know, we all know and are beneficiaries of the fact that in the current university environment, law schools are pretty well off, you know, relatively speaking, and have a certain kind of prestige. And when it comes to partnering with artists and arts institutions, I found it, we have found it extremely beneficial to have somebody in a law school as part of that application. Um, this is like intensely problematic to me as somebody who's like writes about art and thinks with art and so on and so on that, you know, we have this, there's a perception that this brings a certain kind of real worldness or grounding or political seriousness or something, but it does at the moment for now, or we have found that it does. And so very instrumentally speaking, collaborate, if you are, if you have the opportunity to collaborate with an artist, they may well be grateful for having a certain kind of institutional partner. And we've found, we've, we found it, we've, we've had a lot of success in applying for money and not just applying for money for the sake of it, but money that can often simply be funneled towards an artist. Artist fees, um, flights to bring international artists into town. And often that is... A large part of that is the partnership with a law school, often a partnership with a law school where I'm able to access some a small amount of funds through, um, you know, a grant scheme or something internally that, that can then be supplemented with an OSCO applicant, you know, and so on and so on. So that's very technical and instrumental, but it's worth mentioning because people value the legal partnership. And then like more specifically, like, what do I actually bring to table? I mean, like... I, you know, I don't think that there's such a huge distinction between the artist and the lawyer, you know, necessarily, but, um, you know, so I like to feel like I can contribute to the curation or the more aesthetic decisions. And it matters that I'm a certain kind of legal writer. Like I've always written about art and music and the way that I write my texts, you know, as a scholar always begins with style or is very conscious of style. So it's not as if there's a, something called the legal and something, that's the whole point of law and humanities scholarship to sort of denaturalize that distinction on one level. But also we've been quite strategic about the projects that we chose. So the point of bringing our work together around the, around eavesdropping 
was that like, well, this is a recognizable legal language. This is a this is a term that, you know, comes from Blackstone and much before, you know, it's really anchored in a kind a certain kind of legal scholarship that's going to be legible in a certain kind of way. So in that particular project, I was really able to bring some very straightforwardly legal analysis that I think it sort of, yeah, it was valued and it made it interesting and it was part of the intervention in Sonic Art you know, when people entered the gallery, we had a copy of Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, like right there. It gives a certain, it's not necessarily what you expect to find. Um, so yeah, I think I was contributing something, but I don't want to overdo the separateness of the field. Uh, Sandhya, you, you had a question? I'll let Anish go first. I can ask James a question afterwards if there's more time. Um, thanks, 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 James. And I know how <laughs> vulnerable that would have been to share the, the things. So thank you for doing that. Um, but just a thought on where this could even kind of take us forward. So I'm just, I'm just counting, and I can see there's already seven people on this call who I personally know have some sort of art practice that runs in parallel to their research work and. You know, if we're talking about creating communities, I think it's worth thinking about some kind of workshop slash gathering in the future, which could be about kind of really drawing out this thing that we do. Perhaps it's practice-led research, perhaps it's art as research output. So something in that gathering also kind of helps people kind of clarify their work. And so that's just kind of one thing that I just wanted to put out there. Um, the second was... Um, so just to kind of point that another opportunity that comes through when you start orienting towards the NTRO space is that it opens out a world of grants that you might not think about. And that also just the idea of actually having successful grant applications seems to be a thing that kind of really helps at this point. So um, I'll just give you my own example. I'm yet to have success with grants within the university. But in the world of art and theater, just in the city of Melbourne, I've, I now have grants totaling like $10,000 just for this year, right? And it's not a lot of money in one sense, but perhaps it will allow me to receive higher amounts in the future. And unlike some of the grants that we do in the university, which require weeks and weeks of effort, these are much easier grants to put together, right? So the city of Melbourne's quick response grant literally requires three hours of work and it gets you $4,500, that's that's good. So just to kind of put that out there. I mean, that's such a great point, uh, Danish. Um, I don't want to make, I don't, you were not doing this, but obviously arts are not some kind of cash cow <laughs> that we as lawyers should be milking. But at the same time, if the collaboration with arts can get access to certain kinds of resources and then we with other kinds of resources within a law school are able to you know it is it can be a win-win kind of a situation and and i think it's important when you're doing this to be collaborating where possible with artists who already know how these things work and they have their own you know language and genre conventions so i wouldn't i you know we've we've applied for lots of osco funding and um, uh, Arts Council funding and various other things within the university, and and I wouldn't know how to do that without the specific collaborators that I've done. So I would, you know, I'd counsel people to, you know, 
to reach out to somebody if you don't already have that collaborator or if you do to just have the confidence to have a crack at it. That's nice. Sorry, did you see me, Kathleen? Yes, yeah. yeah <laughs> Thank you. you Thanks so much, um, James. That was really interesting um, and engaging and um, it's really generous for you to share um, all of those things and materials in that vulnerable way. I just wanted to pick up a little bit on the last point that you made, which you said you did feel uncomfortable about, um, this worry about losing the law bit. And I wondered um, if you could say a bit more about that, whether it's a concern with institutional legibility or with intellectual coherence that really is the anxiety there. Or both. So, yeah, I can absolutely answer that. So, you know, eavesdropping was like some kind of like perf. It was just so legible. It wasn't, we didn't do that cynically, but it was just so obvious what it had to do with law. It was an exhibition, but it was about an old legal offense that had been kind of taken up and, you know, globalized as a framework for thinking about sonic surveillance. Like, amazing. But machine listening is a topic that can be approached via legal or jurisprudential thought or not. <laughs> and I, you know, ended up getting sucked into this. I've written a history paper, basically, because I wanted to understand what machine listening was. And so it turns out it has lots to do with like... Um, what computer musicians were doing in the 1980s and 1990s. And in order to elaborate that history, like adequately, you know, it needed 10 or 12,000 words. And there's just not a law story there. There just isn't in that particular article. And I feel comfortable to do it because I've been, I know the material very well. And I just feel like, well, look, I know about computer music now. And I shouldn't be embarrassed about that. And I'll just try and do it. Um, and afterwards, at ACA also doesn't have an overt legal story, except that I think that the performativity of speech, the ways in which speech is operational, when we, you know, wake up a smart speaker, say, um, you know, there's, that's classic J.L. Austin performative speech, right? Like, like a wedding vow or like signing a contract. And in fact, when you awaken Alexa, you do in fact embroil yourself in legal relations in a certain kind of way. So to me afterwards does have a legal story, but it's not foregrounded in the way that it is in eavesdropping. Like you would have to be an extremely attentive listener to hear that. But to me, it's sort of humming away in the background. And so... Yeah, the anxiety cuts both ways. On the one hand, it's like, who do you want to be? And if you spend enough time hanging around with artists and musicians and so on and so on, you might start to question like, well, what is it that I just so happen to be in a law school? Or do I have some kind of deep commitment to legal questions? And the answer is, I don't really know anymore. I don't know if I'm fundamentally committed to legal. I might be committed to political ones. And I might have a certain kind of, you know, familiarity with legal questions that means that they're more in my, you know, they might surface themselves a little bit more in my work than otherwise, but I don't know 
I don't know how much I should be pulling myself back. And that's personally as well as institutionally. We'll see institutionally. I sort of think a little bit the institutional chicken thing again, like I'll wait for somebody to tell me that my work isn't sufficiently legal before I start to do something about it. But I do feel that personally too, that like, you know, who even am I? Like, I'm not an historian. <laughs> so what am I if I'm I'm not a I mean am I an artist I'm not really an artist but I'm you know so there is a certain kind of anxiety that yeah the fact people have told me not to worry about it but that doesn't really help that much to be honest <laughs> one um thing one might say about that that's a sort of thread running through a lot of these skill circles and the ethos question is rather than focus on the disciplinary knowledges or communities of practice one could say, well, what what does one want to take responsibility for in life? And so I guess that offers us a way to think about our responsibility in terms of the training that we've had as legal scholars and so on. But it's not necessarily your answer, but it might be one thing I might think about in rather than trying to define myself to think about that. One of the things that I always say in response to that is like, you know, part of the journey of you know, foraying into non-traditional research outputs and so on is the kind of be open to a certain kind of or to privilege even a certain kind of extra institutionality or a kind of or like I don't feel that my training quote unquote is the most important part of my um, now I know that you know of my work so what I value most about my work is the things that I have trained myself in or have allowed myself to be trained in by bumping into artists and spending time with them. And like, so the problem is that although I recognize that one is shaped by an institution and of course, one, of course you are, the things that I value most about my work are the things that I feel rightly or wrongly were not so shaped in that way so it it creates a crisis for me in terms of that responsibility question honestly can I just take you in a different direction because that might be a slightly different conversation but yes. uh you might have said something about this before in relation to the work that you've been doing with artists you talk about your group in terms of a collective who pays the artists um well the Two other sort of primary collaborators are both waged by universities. Yeah. And then we do, we, every time we work with an artist, we pay the artist. Some of that money has come through, um, you know, I applied for some money to pay artists in my DECRA application. It's just sort of there, a pot of money. Sometimes um, we'll apply for, we're currently putting together an Australia Council grant application for a project, a spin-off project that will involve artist fees and production fees. And often a production fee ends up paying, you know, a technician or a coder or something who is also an artist, yeah. you know, and so and so on and so on. So yeah, we we're always and there are like, you know, standard Ella, rates and Ella's so on. Ella has funded some of it. And I know and Ella has funded some of it, yeah. yes. And I know Alice Palmer's always extremely conscious of that question because she runs the art and law program in Illa. Right. Um, so I, it's not it's not exactly a non-traditional research output question, but it is in the sense that often non-traditional research outputs will involve collaboration with people who haven't got a salary. Um, and so that's always been a, 
big question for Illa because we don't have that much money either. So it's a good, it's a good um, reminder that if anybody's thinking of this, then finding funding sources like Varnish has through City of Melbourne, or I think that's what well, you mentioned, Varnish. But yeah, one thing I also do is I uh, don't accept artist fees when. Uh, often when an arts institution will offer it to me. It depends on the arts institution, but if they're, and you know, with ACCA it might be one thing, um, but if it were anyone smaller where the money can very obviously and directly and quickly go to another artist who isn't waged, and I, then I would just pass the, pass the money on. Um, I see that we are at time. But Rad, did you you had a, you had your hand up before. Um, if you had a quick question, perhaps we could finish off with that. Yes, yeah, sure. Thank you so much, Andre, and thank you, James. That was immensely interesting for all sorts of reasons. I'm not from the legal field. My um, my area is in art education. So um, two of the things that I was thinking about as you were presenting um, was the notion of representation and how. Um, you are making different sorts of representations of research um, and institutionally, I guess they're called outputs, traditional or otherwise. Um, but the other thing I was thinking about is uh, your practice, your research practice, and perhaps that sort of um, addresses some of the dilemmas um, that you were um, kind enough to, to share with us um, that you face in an institutional sort of setting. I was just wondering, I guess, if you had any reflections on your practice because you, um, in sharing uh, some of your justifications of how um, the work is not about engagement, I'm wondering what sort of um, reception you've had from the academy in terms of your ideas and the research that you're putting forward with those outputs. Thank you. Um, yeah, those are great points. I mean, one of the pleasures of doing non-traditional research work is that you have a genuine audience outside of the academy. And to be honest, and I really should have said this earlier, it is much more satisfying to me to produce works produce make things where there's an audience and I can see them and sometimes they turn up to an event and they smile and they say thank you and there's this kind of a that there's something immediate about it which is a really nice antidote to the slowness of traditional scholarship and so on and so on so often or increasingly, I don't find myself looking to academic um, audiences for acknowledgement. Um, but I would also say that the arts world is incredibly highly academicized. Like, you know, so many artists have PhDs or are doing them. And so <laughs> there are lots of opportunities perversely to write about this kind of work into a scholarly artistic context as well. And sometimes that's a bit weird and gross and just like seems like rehashing something. And But with eavesdropping, one of the works that Andre was involved in and um, the Manus Recording Project, you know, gave, uh, gave rise to some really interesting curatorial questions. 
really, really interesting political and legally oriented recording questions. And so we really felt a responsibility to record those for other artists and academics and academic curators thinking through the curatorial questions that, you know, in, involved in working with people in detention or offshore and so on and so on. And so, like, in dip, you know, sometimes the, the answer is that sometimes I wasn't interested in what academic audiences thought, and it was very pleasurable not to be interested. And sometimes it was obvious that there would be an academic audience and it was important to do that. And I don't know how well that's particularly been received. And, you know, it just goes into the into the void and gets cited a few times maybe. But giving up on citation as the measure of your success is quite freeing <laughs> in a certain kind of way. Thank you, James. Um, and yes, that, well, thank you everyone for, um, for coming along and um, please join me in um, giving James a virtual or, or sonic round of applause mm -hmm. for, um, for a great session. Thanks so much, James. Thanks, Thanks James. everybody. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.